It's easy to get excited about starting a cannabis business. There's so much opportunity, and many of us have a whole lot of know-how that was hard-earned during the Prohibition era. We go through our day creating great products that we valued by people, and they appreciate our efforts. There are plenty of landmines that can ruin our businesses, including capital shortages, bad crops, sketchy business partners, and, of course, regulators. The one problem that most people ignore until they are blindsided by it, though, is trademark. Trademark issues suck. For most people, trademark is an unfamiliar boogeyman that we don't really know enough about to defend ourselves. Most folks just go forward on hearsay in a sincere hope that no one else tries to use your business name and that we're not using someone else's trademark as well. The problem with cannabis is that most businesses are pulling their business and product names from a Prohibition-era cannabis lexicon, which is very limited. As we are already seeing, a business name may be used once in California, and again in Washington, and again in Ohio, and again in Arkansas. These companies may not even know each other. Because federal trademarks for cannabis are not yet allowed, simply using the USPTO database is not enough. And it is so disheartening when you find out that you have a trademark issue with another company. Both companies are usually very invested in their name. Both have emotional attachment to their name, and everyone involved is going to have to spend money to get it sorted out. Trademarks are especially difficult in cannabis, and if you want to avoid future pains, the time to trademark as much as you can is right now. If you enjoy hearing frank discussions that dive deep into cannabis health, business, and technique, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. Every week, you'll receive a new podcast episode delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos, too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Lose. My guest today is Neil Juneja. Neil is founder and managing partner at the Gleam Law Firm. Neil has successfully filed over 400 cannabis trademarks and patent applications. In addition to cannabis, Neil works in the physics, computer science, finance, optics, and information systems sectors. He also represents clients worldwide with the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Neil is a sought-after speaker and trademark law instructor. He's also a member of the Washington Bar, the Federal Bar of Washington, and the United States Patent Bar. Today, we're going to talk about cannabis trademarks. Welcome to the show, Neil. Uh, thank you, Shango. Happy to be here. I'm glad you could make it. So, you know, before we get into the questions, I think we need to be clear from the outset that while you're going to help make trademarks clearer today, that you are not giving legal advice and the audience should be sure to do their own homework and talk to a trademark attorney, right? Right. <laughs> right on. Cool. So let's start at the point where most folks first get into trouble. You know, today we're primarily going to be talking about trademark, and trademark is really commonly confused with copyright and patent. So would you clarify the differences between copyright, patent, and trademark? Sure. So why don't we start with patent law? So patents are essentially inventions, a mechanical item or software. They can even be something like a design. So for instance, like the industrial design of, uh, for the purpose of this show, a bong or a water pipe has been patented. And there's even a cannabis plant patent. So plant patents are uh, the third type of patents, and that's called Ecuadorian Sativa by Steve Cubby, currently owned by either Kush or Cannabis Sativa, a publicly traded company. Um, so they're essentially useful inventions. Now, copyright is the exact polar opposite. It's essentially creative work, something like a book or music or a movie. And now trademarks are different than the other two in that they're a brand, and they're not about giving rights to the creator, they're about protecting the consumer. Now, with these three areas of intellectual property, there are overlaps between them. So for instance, uh, a logo that's a nice drawing or a nice image can also be protected as a creative work under copyright, but your central protection that you're going to go for if you're using it as a brand is trademark law. And so, so like, what about something like a slogan? Because I wrote that, so maybe that's copyright, but it's also part of my logo-y kind of thing, so maybe it's uh, trademark. 
Okay, so it's definitely a trademark because it's a brand identifier. Now, where it divides for copyright is copyright has to reach a requisite level of creativity, uh, a modicum of creativity, if you will. And that means a book reaches that level, but a title of a book does not. So short phrases or sentences usually are not protectable under copyright law. Man, I've had that conversation informally with so many people, and you just nailed it in like two sentences what other people muddle through <laughs> for so long. <laughs> All right, so so our trademark is our company name, the names of our products, um, the logos and the symbols and slogans that represent our company and our product. Do we need a separate trademark for each of the products the company has on the market, or is there such thing as an umbrella trademark that covers everything we do? Not generally, but there's a way to do an umbrella protection. Uh, why don't we start with company name? So a company name isn't in and of itself a trademark unless you're using it as a source identifier, a source of the goods and services. So a uh, common misconception is a trade name is a trademark. The only thing they have in common is the word trade. A uh, trade name is a DBA, um, trade name, fictitious name, and that's really just what you write the checks into. So when people say, look, I protected it under a trade name, that's really no protection at all. Uh-oh. Interesting. So you 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 have to both um, establish your name with your business license or LLC, and then go additionally and create protections for it. Correct. If you're going to use it as a brand of a product, then trademarks can protect, as you mentioned, names, uh, slogans, logos. They can even protect uh, esoteric things like product packaging under what's called trade dress. Um, colors, as long as it's not indicative of the product. A good example would be uh, insulation, Pink Panther insulation. Pink has no connection with what it does or what it is. So you couldn't get green for the color of your cannabis flower. But if maybe you dyed it a really weird color, then that could become part of your your trademark, part of your overarching brand. I'm not recommending you do that. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> sounds, uh, the the lion roar or the Intel sound could also be protected. It's interesting because um, I would think that each of those things had to be proven to the patent office when they when they were first thought of. So to a certain degree, your trademark is kind of what you can get away with. Uh, in a sense. So there's three levels or three methods of protection for trademark. One is common law, and that's just by using it in commerce. You have some type of protection in the region in which you're using it. Uh, so if, let's say, you're licensed in Washington to sell cannabis, your brand protection or common law only extends to those borders and not outside of that because you're not selling in Idaho. Uh, so that's the first automatic, in a sense, protection. Then there's state law protection, which is a really weak level of trademark protection, but it's also generally inexpensive in the states that allow it. Washington allows it. Colorado allows it. Nevada allows it. Oregon allows it. California currently does not allow it. And then you have federal. Federal is the big one. This is nationwide protection, coast to coast. And uh, you have to get through the USPTO, the United States Patent and Trademark Office. And generally, they don't care for uh, anything in violation of money laundering or Controlled Substances Act. So it becomes a, a much higher barrier to get that through. All right. So, you know, I could tell by your tone of voice that there was a certain amount of humor in the they don't prefer it. But at the same time, you know, I am really curious to ask you straight up, you know, is the federal government giving any form of cannabis uh, trademarks yet? Are they starting to squeak through? Are we seeing light, you know, kind of cracking through or is it still like zero tolerance? Uh, well, it depends. I mean, the Controlled Substances Act has a uh, minimum THC required and CBD is considered an analog. And uh, CBD also got recategorized by the uh, DEA recently. So the trademark office has gone back and forth on saying, look, if it's CBD only or if you derive it from hemp, we're going to let it through. And right now there's been a little bit more resistance than previously. So sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. But you also have an idea of going for a lifestyle brand or a smoking accessories, uh, apparel, and creating at least um, a beachhead for further expansion when we finally and eventually and inevitably uh, change the scheduling of cannabis. 
Yeah, I think that like refers back to my, you know, your trademark is what you can get away with or what you can prove because, you know, I've already started to see, you know, both clients and people that my clients are competing with, uh, you know, they can't get their federal trademark because these companies handle the plant, which is still schedule one. And so they're like, they're being, they're trying to find other sneaky ways to get some sort of a trademark. And so they're, they're, they're marking, they're, they're uh, getting their trademark as like a consulting company or as a, or as a t-shirt company or, or something that looks ancillary that they will then blow up into a full federal trademark for a cannabis company when it's allowed, you know, are, they, are you know are, are my clients fooling themselves? Does that actually buy them any protection? I think it buys some protection. It really depends on how you're going to enforce it. So, I mean, the first thing you can do is send a cease and desist letter. But when you actually get to court, your claim is they're infringing my mark. Well, are they? Are they in the same area of commerce that you are? You're selling T-shirts. They're selling pot. Well, you know, I'm also selling pot. Oh, so you're saying that you're using this trademark on an illegal good and you want to enforce that. Is that what you're saying? So mm -hmm. it's it really depends what argument you're going to formulate here and, and what strategy you start with and you carry through. Uh, there's a method of um, – generally it's trademark infringement, but there's something else called trademark dilution through tarnishment. Essentially, you're using something that is clearly not infringement, but it's harming my good name. Maybe you're, you're using it in an immoral way. Immoral way? What would that be? I'm using it for an illegal drug. Well, you need to stop that. Well, you're using it for the same thing. And there goes that argument. So it, it really just depends on the judge and how you use the Lanham Act. The Lanham Act is a federal law for trademarks uh, in order to enforce your mark. So it's something that you really want to develop the strategy of from the get-go and carry through that strategy the whole time and know how you're going to enforce it. Yeah, that makes sense because you want to have your arguments be consistent in front of the court. I grok that. So, you know, let's tease out a little bit more ancillary companies because, you know, a lot of people listen to the show who have got licenses, but a lot more listen to the show that are, for, to use your example, you know, making bongs or something, something that is involved in the cannabis industry, but doesn't actually handle the plant. And so they're technically not, uh, you know, they're not trafficking. So, um, so, so what about these ancillary companies? Like, do they have the ability to get a trademark at a federal level, even though their products are used for cannabis? Um, and maybe, maybe they're a consulting firm, um, and and their clients are all cannabis. So as long as they're not handling the plant, are they all good as far as the feds go? Uh, it depends. So why don't we look first at let's say smoking articles? I make a vape pen. Well, sure. If it's used for nicotine, we're going to let it through. If its main use is for cannabis, well, no, it's paraphernalia. Um, but then you have areas that get automatic first right, First Amendment protection, like uh, I'm putting out a magazine. Okay, well, you really can't say somebody can't put out high times, and you're going to get a trademark on that because you really aren't touching the plant here, and it's not used in order to break the law specifically. So that would be permitted. And then there's gray areas here and there. Consulting usually does work, but it varies. Um, credit card processing usually doesn't work, but it varies again. It's all fact-based. So what I'm getting from this, Neil, is that there's quite a bit of hustle in how to make this argument. I mean, this is not just uh, – it's not cut and dry in how you build your pitch to the to the USPTO. There's a lot of, well, we could go to them with these four or five different strategies. Which one are we going to have our best you know, likelihood of success with? Yeah, exactly. I mean, really, the moment you should talk to a trademark attorney is – the moment you're going to spend your first dollar on marketing or advertising or you develop the brand. And to go a little off topic, one of my biggest frustrations is that people aren't creative with their brands. They've got to put words like 420 in there and Mary, Mary Jane's what, you know, and U.S. cannabis and things like that. And I don't understand. I mean, from an advertising perspective, it is not distinctive and it's like everything else. And even worse, your consumer, where are they buying your product? Oh, in a cannabis shop. Well, do you really need the marijuana leaf on your product now? They're in a shop that only sells that. I'm pretty sure they know what's in it. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, and heck, that that goes that goes along with the bad ideas of the early days of especially medical in Washington and California and Colorado when people would take a pre-existing brand and then um, pervert it. You know, just like uh, they do on rave flyers. The, the classic was the was the um, Mr. Good Bar that was uh, remade to be Mr. Dab Bar. Well, obviously, you're totally infringing on the Nestle tr- uh, trademark. You are. So the main defense I hear when people do this is they say, look, it's parody. Uh, Parody law is copyrights. So parody is designed for First Amendment protection because you've got to parody the politician speaking. You've got to make political commentary. When it comes to trademark law, most attorneys will tell you parody doesn't exist. It does exist. Parody law exists in an extremely narrow uh, setting where you actually have to parody the product you're purchasing. The only good example for this is a company on the East Coast started a coffee brand or a type of coffee beans called Charbucks, and Starbucks came after them, and they sued them. And the court said, well, it is a parody because they're obviously parodying Starbucks, and Starbucks over-roasts their beans, so we're going to allow it. So wow. <laughs> probably should have been pursued. It's pretty bad for Starbucks, but it showed that you weren't just parodying their product, but the butt of the joke was who you were parodying. Right on. And I think that's a good uh, time to point out, too, that um, a, a lot of these folks who are um, you know, coming up with these plays on a pre-existing company's names, you know, these companies like Starbucks, they have got to defend their trademark because – um, whether or not you defend your trademark over time is actually a point of fact when you go in front of a judge that if you if you're lax nine times out of ten, but then the tenth one you want to enforce, the judge is going to go, man, you're not protecting your trademark. So really, if you are a trademark holder, you have to go after everybody. Well – Kind of. Or maybe not. (laughs) No, you're you're absolutely right to some regard. It's called policing your trademark. And if you don't police it, if you don't stop infringers uh, from a broad level, if you don't try, then you're obviously saying – or you're saying to consumers, I don't care whether or not you know it's my products that are being sold. That weakens the trademark. That can be used to invalidate it. Now, the level of policing isn't everybody. The way the courts have looked at it is they've said – You have to police it within your ability. So if you're somebody like Starbucks, your job is to police it and go after everybody. But if you're a smaller consumer, you don't have to go after everybody if you don't have the resources, but you do have to make an effort. Oh, wow. Actually, that's – I can totally imagine that there's somebody listening going, oh, hell yeah, right now because there's so many small shops right now in cannabis who are afraid of taking on big guys and they're afraid of the future and they're afraid of the corporatization of cannabis. But honestly, so long as they are are you know being responsible and trademarking as much as they can, um, perhaps they can hold their own with the big boys going into the future. And so, so let's talk about the future before we before we go to com- our first commercial. So, you know, eventually the federal trademarks will become legal. What that looks like politically, you know, one can only imagine. But eventually, normalization will come around federally. You know, what do you imagine um, it's going to look like? When suddenly the gates are open at the federal level, what will be the, I don't know, the threshold moment that says that cannabis trademarks are acceptable? And how do you imagine they will be determined who gets the mark and who doesn't? Because honestly, you know, there are companies in Colorado, California, and Washington um, who have got the same name locally, and they're all going to be applying to the Fed at the same time. So I know I'm asking you to kind of look into your crystal ball a little bit, but, but just give me what you got based on your experience. That's really interesting. Uh, as far as that goes, I mean, it'll be a race to the trademark office. We're going to look at first use in commerce is going to be one of the weights. It's going to be where you're located. It's going to be a lot of lawsuits, really. Uh, we don't know how they're going to do it, and there's been debate on this. So the USPTO has 45 classes of goods and services, from entertainment to apparel to uh, consulting to smoking articles, to pharmaceuticals. The best way to do this is to create a cannabis class, but we can't do that because we use international class systems from NICE, uh, from uh, basically the World Intellectual Property Organization under the UN. So 
they're probably going to allow you to get one in apparel, one in food items. There's three classes for food items, et cetera. So you may have a big brand name in edibles and somebody else has it in flour and they're right next to each other on the shelf with the same brand and it's going to be tough. It's going to be a lot of, I think, infringement suits will come out. Oh man, you know, um, that's, I mean, I know that you don't necessarily want people to be fighting because I know you're pro cannabis and you know, you like cannabis entrepreneurs. And at the same time, it sounds like your field of cannabis, you know, trademark and patent and copyright is a growing field. (laughs) I think the best way that people can avoid this is by looking for really arbitrary, distinctive marks that are unlike anything else. Uh, for instance, I could start a computer company and I could call it Computer Companies R Us or International Business Machines, or I can just pick up a name that has nothing to do with computers like Apple Hmm. and nobody else is out there because nobody else is naming their computer after a fruit and I'm going to be good while I grow and I'll be distinctive and no, uh, no other brands are going to be anything similar to mine. Right on. And actually, that's that. I actually went through that exercise um, when coming up with the name for the podcast, Shaping Fire, right? Um, it, it is uh, odd words that, that feel good together. And, and the idea behind the brand was always that, you know, we, we've got this, this fast burning entrepreneurial activity and way to heal people. And it's, it's kind of going wild. And, 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 and how do we shape it so it can have more meaning to humans? And when you put them together, Shaping Fire doesn't, doesn't really mean anything. And so I guess that's how you get like computer companies, you know, purple polar penguin and things like this. People who are just making things that are so unique that uh, there's there's no chance that it's going to compete with anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. There's five strengths of trademarks and you want to go for the top three. Yours would fall under the, the third one or the third of five, which is inherently distinctive and that's called being suggestive. So here it's suggestive of what you're doing. So you don't know what it is that you're providing with just shaping fire. But when you hear about it, you get an understanding of it like, oh, I see it kind of encapsulates this or it addresses a a particular attribute of what we're doing that's suggestive like greyhound what is it i don't know oh it's a bus company oh you're trying to say it's a fast bus company i get it uh the next level up is arbitrary like apple the next level up is fanciful i made up the word it's not in the dictionary there's no way anybody else could have it because i made it up and that's your strongest level of trademarks and for anybody who's not familiar with it, the cornerstone of that example, of course, is Xerox, right? They made up this word. It's fantastic. And uh, everyone knows exactly what you're talking about when you say Xerox. Absolutely. It's perfect. Now, Xerox actually almost went down to what we call the Xerox effect, where you become so central to the, the product group that people are now using your term as a verb. Are you going to photocopy it? I'll just Xerox it. Well, once it starts to be known as the the overall term, it loses its ability to be protectable. Uh, I would say so, Kleenex would be another one. Hey, hand me a Kleenex. Even if it's puffs, you're handing me a Kleenex. Exactly. Uh, elevator was a trademark. Uh, oh, wow. So was Escalator. So it was one or the other. And it was lost because it just became the generic term for what the device was. Fantastic. So we're going to take a short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. And my guest today is attorney Neil Janeja, founder and managing partner at Gleam Law. We humans are attracted to plants because they offer us relief and are a whole lot of fun. Sometimes, though, the best parts are buried inside the plant and we need to use specialty extraction technology. When it comes to cannabis, it is extraordinarily important to extract its precious oils without changing them in the process. We want to preserve the properties of the cannabinoids, terpenes, and other constituents that all work together. Since 1994, Eden Labs has been developing extraction technology and processes to do just that. Eden Labs was founded by a cannabis-loving engineer during the early days of medical marijuana in California, and the expanded Eden team has been designing and building industry-leading solutions for cannabis extraction ever since. Eden Labs' flagship product is the newly improved high-flow CO2 extractor. As other extraction companies enter the market, it is the high-flow from Eden Labs that everyone chases and tries to compare themselves with. Not only that, but the improved automation software allows data to be collected, stored, and studied. Eden Labs can outfit your whole lab. 
Eden's cold finger ethanol extractor creates astonishing whole plant extracts working alone or in tandem with an initial stream distilling step to isolate monoterpenes before extracting the rest of the botanical constituents. Eden offers you many options, including vacuum distillation, column distilling, stirred reactor units, and accelerated solvent recovery. When you partner with Eden Labs, your lab team is enrolled into the Eden Labs training program to boost their understanding of Eden's best practices to ensure that your outputs are exactly what you require for your application, whether it be dab oil, oil for pen cartridges, or edibles. When you work with Eden, you're not just buying the tech, you're buying dedicated customer support to help you attain your business goals, too. You can hear Eden's CEO, A.C. Braddock, talk about the company's values during Shaping Fire episode 19 that was all about CO2 extraction. So many of the new companies in the market just smell opportunity, slap an extractor together, and hire a marketing company. Eden Labs has been listening to feedback from extractors and consumers for about 25 years now. They care about both you and your consumer. Partner with Eden Labs to extract astonishing cannabis oils and terpenes that you will be proud of. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Eden to find out more. Businesses everywhere are constantly striving to reach out to people through advertising. We all know, though, that trying to reach a cannabis audience with a quality message is pretty difficult. That's why many people choose to advertise on the Shaping Fire podcast. Advertising on this show allows us time to talk about your product, service, or brand in a way that really lets people know what sets your company apart from others. Bold people who own companies know that getting into a relationship with their customers is essential. That is what we offer. We will explain your service or product and what sets it apart as desirable and help our audience get in contact with you. It's pretty simple, really. Advertising does not have to be all whiz-bang, smoke, and mirrors. Nowadays, I find that people prefer just to be spoken to calmly, accurately, and with good intentions. If you want to make your own commercial spot, you can do that too. Because the podcast is young but growing at an exceptionally fast rate, if you become an advertiser on the Shaping Fire podcast now, you are going to pay a fraction of the cost we'll be asking for in just a few months. And yet everyone listening both now and to the back catalog of interviews later will hear about your company again and again for years. It's a great deal for you. Pay a small amount now because the show is new, but take advantage of the huge listening audience we will have forever. Do yourself a solid and contact us today for rates on podcast and newsletter advertising. Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out more. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is attorney Neil Janeja, founder and managing partner at Gleam Law. So before the break, we were talking about what a trademark is, what a trademark covers, and actually we talked about several of the challenges to trademarks and how we might want to think about that. So, so now that we're pretty clear on that, let's talk about how actually to get one because um, I have helped clients with their attorneys do this and I've looked into this for myself and taken some steps in the direction and you know, there's no question that it's got a secret vocabulary, the USPTO website. While not impossible, it, it, there's so much information there, it can be overwhelming. So, so Neil, you know, for our entrepreneurs who are listening, what is the first step that a business owner should take when moving forward to trademark their name? All right. Well, first, we, we did go over this before, but make sure it's a distinctive name. Uh, work with your branding people. Work with your marketing department, advertising department. Make sure you have something that really is worth protecting. Uh, my general rule of thumb is if you hear the brand, you should not know what product it is. But once you do, you know, either it kind of works with that or it has no connection to that, like Apple. Uh, from there, let's say we want to go for a federal trademark where you're going to want to do a clearance search. And that's basically searching all applications and registrations in the trademark office. And it's usually good to do a broader search and just look at all uses in commerce. Uh, first level of clearance search is called a knockout search. And you go to the USPTO website and you go to the TESS, the T-E-S-S. -S, it's the Trademark Electronic Search Service or something of that nature. And uh, you type it in. You do a simple search and see what comes up. And then you analyze that and you can look at what classes other applications registrations are in or how common it is. Uh, 
After that, you want to do what's called a thorough or what we call a thorough clearance search. Now, what this search will do and um, every firm or search firm will have their own algorithms on how they feel it's satisfied. And we have our own proprietary algorithms, too. We've developed over years. Uh, and what you're looking for is anything likely to cause consumer confusion. And that's the test. What is likely to cause consumer confusion? Well, things that are spelled different. Uh Words that may sound the same. The first word is the dominant word in most cases. Uh, rhymes may fit in here. Uh, there's a whole breadth of stuff. And the reason you're looking for this is you don't want to go through the whole process and six months from now be dead in the water and you already have your product on the shelves and you realize – I now have to change my brand. And when we come down to it, the main two reasons to register a trademark are, one, you want to know when you're using it in commerce that nobody's going to come out of the woodwork and say, you're infringing my brand, you need to change. Because then you've lost all the goodwill, all the reputation, everything that you've worked for is in that brand and it's gone and you have to start from square one again. The second reason to do this is so you can do it to other people. So you can stop <laughs> others from using a mark like yours. So those are the two main reasons the way I break it down. Um, so after you complete your thorough search, uh, you know what obstacles are out there. You know the lay of the land. You know how broad your protection can go. And the way that works is if it's a clear and open field, your protection isn't just in one of those 45 classes. It can expand beyond that without even registering it if it's reasonable, foreseeable, reasonably foreseeable that you would expand into those. Uh, but if it's a very crowded field, you may be able to wedge it in on one of the classes, but you're not going to be able to expand to other markets, other classes of goods and services. So it's really important to know, especially when you, you're looking long distance, where your company may go and whether that brand may be able to use in other areas. Again, to use the Apple example, Apple Music exists in England. So when Apple went with iTunes and invented the iPod, that was fine. They could do Apple Music here but not in England. And that really uh, hampered their ability to move forward in that market under that brand. So I want to talk about the form for just a second because um, uh, it is a pretty easy form to use, but, I, but because I know that people are going to be going from this podcast and Googling USPTO and coming to their splash page, um, I want to in just encourage folks because I've been through this myself. When you get to the USPTO office, it gives you a whole bunch of legalese vocabulary about how and why trademarks work and, and what their database means. And it all seems very, very heavy. Um, but there's also a little bright colored link that says, if you've already read all of this and you'd like to go right to the search form, please click here. And, you know, certainly you're eventually going to want to read that or, or better yet be working with an attorney um, so that they can translate it for you. But feel free to just click that damn link and get beyond all the legalese because mostly what you want to do the first time you are you know, considering a name for your company and you want to run a search, you just want to make sure there's not you know, 8,000 other companies that are also playing with the same name. And so go ahead and click the go right to the form and, and then you'll see all these drop-down menus for all these different options. It's really easy to just put your you know, word or three in the box and hit search, and it'll come back with totally valid results. Um, it is amazing how many clients I've worked with who felt this was very imposing because the U.S. Trade and Patent Office is imposing. But at the same time, just put push through. The, form, the form's bark is, is a lot worse than its bite. So – so, Neil, what happens if I put in the name of my company or the new product name that I'm planning on using and, and oh, my God, other companies come up? Well, from that point, so there's three types of searches on the test. There's the simple, structured, and free form. So you're probably using a simple search. Now, with the structured, you can do a little bit more complicated stuff. Same with the free form. It's almost Boolean. Well, it's Boolean, but it's not the same uh, syntax as Google. So you'll want to actually Google. Notice how I'm using the brand as a verb. You'll want <laughs> <laughs> the way that the reason that works with Google is we all know it's the Google search engine. You're not going to Bing. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, you'll want to Google different methods of search syntax to really get a, a, a little bit more deep into it. But when you do this and it comes up with, let's say, 50 results, the key is to analyze those results. Look at uh, how close they 
they resemble what you're doing. Um, would it be likely to cause consumer confusion? That's the, the legal test. Uh, look at um, the file wrapper or the uh, prosecution history and say, how did the examiner treat this? Did they find uh, reasons to reject this for consumer confusion issues or something else? And you're able to start to get a picture of whether or not you may be able to make it through the trademark office's whole process. Um, definitely, I think at that point, you'd probably want to talk to a lawyer that has experience. For instance, I can glance at you know, our analysis and know what actually is going to be an obstacle out of our searches of, you know, uh, my guys will give me a hundred of them with all of the data. And I'll just be able to look at that two page readout and say, all right, we have one that's going to be an issue. So um, it, there is definitely some growth with the experience, but let's say you, you decide to proceed on or you say, screw it, I'm just going to file it and just see what happens. Um, the actual form that you enter into is pretty handy. It has uh, hot links on it that go to the TMEP, and that's the Trademark Manual of Examination Procedure. It's the bulky book that the examiners use in order to know if your trademark should go through or not. And the beauty of that is it hot links you to every regulation. Every word of the code is in there. And it also gives you the case sites. So you can say, why is this? Oh, here's a case right here. I don't have to do legal research. And you can go into the case and look at the legal holding, the uh, the rule that is applied and say, well, I fit within that. I don't. I can argue that. Uh, so that's how you'd fill out the form and you just follow the process, file it. Uh, three to four months later, roughly, an examiner will pick it up. They'll allow it to go through or they'll reject it. Um, if they reject it, you get an office action. You have six months to respond and you respond. Controlled Substances Act. Well, this is why it isn't. Or... I'm just going to ignore it because I lost. <laughs> I'm going to abandon it. Or, you know, likelihood of consumer confusion. And you'll argue with them. Look, you're looking at this wrong. Um, look, you know, this isn't the way it is. Look, I approached that guy that you said I'm conflicting with, and he gave me a document that says it's okay, which is absolutely one method to go, a coexistence agreement, for instance. And you take that back to the examiner and say, I guess it's likely to cause consumer confusion, but they said it's okay. Here's my letter. So these are ways you can get through the the examiner's office. And when you get through that, then they the next step is they publish it in the official gazette. And every two weeks, roughly, I think exactly, they used to put out this dictionary-sized book with every application. And uh, people would pay their, their attorneys to read the book. And every two <laughs> weeks, they just leaf through this book. Well, now, fortunately, it's digital, and you can just download it. And a third party can oppose your registration. And, uh, for instance, we've had a couple Fortune 50 step in and uh, say, you know, this is too close to our mark. We want you to stop. And from there, you can either fight them in what's called the TTAB, the Trademark Trial and Appeals Board, which is essentially an online uh, litigation. So you can submit everything online. It's, it's kind of beautiful. Uh, you never have to get up out of your desk or put on pants. And um, I am wearing pants right now. <laughs> and, I am not. <laughs> so you'd be perfect to litigate this. Uh, so. so how hard is it to how hard is it to um, engage with those? Say, for example, you said Fortune fifty, right? Because like a lot of folks, they just feel that so much of U.S. law is who's got the most expensive attorneys. And is is um, is trademark law a pretty flat um, playing field, or or are all of our you know fears warranted? Uh, it's a bit of both. We had one against a, a Fortune 50 company a few years back, and they made a couple of strategic mistakes. And in the end, we were able to get more and more leverage on them in negotiations, and. We made a minor change, and they allowed us to keep using the brand on so many items every year, which was really a bit more than they wanted to do. So we were allowed to continue using a brand that they said was infringing for a limited use, and we made a minor change, and they let it go through. Mm -hmm. Now, in another case that we're dealing with right now, it's they're not budging an inch, and the client just can't afford the expense. So in the end, they really just have to change it. And I mean, it's a huge difference now than three years ago as well, because now all of the large companies are eyeing the cannabis industry. So by saying, look, we're only going to use it in cannabis, you're not here, 
that may have flown a few years ago. Now everybody knows that's a valid market to expand into someday. So they don't want to handicap themselves at this stage. So there is some negotiation. Everything's negotiable in life. Everything's for sale. Uh, so there is some negotiations with the companies. It really just depends which company it is. Right on. I want to go back to when you were giving instructions about um, using the form on the USPTO website. Uh, you gave an example of a bunch of names coming back and your team would give them to you and you'd scan through them and you'd see the one out of the, I think you said 40 or 50, that was going to be the problem. And so I want to kind of highlight that because it's important because, you know, coming up with a good name is hard. And I have worked with clients for, you know, heck, 30 years now, uh, well, 20 years, I guess, 20 years now on um, – on, on naming their companies and people get so emotionally connected to their first name. And so let's say that there's an entrepreneur and they're really connected to their first name and they run it at the USPTO uh, database and it comes back with all of these uh, responses. It's important for us to say, you know, do not give up, right? Because there's, there, there are ways that even though other people are playing in the same – with your name, they might be doing it so far away from your industry that you can still make it happen. Yeah, that's possible and that's true. Now, here's where it comes into a little bit of um, – a little pain point is let's say there's a lot out there and let's say we can get through the trademark office. OK, you have a registration. You can continue using it. But you're not original, right? You're you're really in line with a lot of other names that are out there that are brands. So it lowers your ability to have a very strong brand or at least it, it lowers it a little bit. So uh, some options are to go for it and just continue marketing it and be fine with it if you can get it through. Another is uh, something I coined or I'm trying to coin uh, like trademark or goodwill transference. I may have to come up with a better name, but it's basically taking your brand that's already out there and converting it into a new brand uh, through slow uh, education of your consumers. You know, I'm U.S. Cannabis and I want to change it to um, uh, LBOT or something. Uh, well, it's U.S. Cannabis's LBOT and you use them together for a period of time until it's indistinguishable. And then you can drop the U.S. Cannabis, for instance, and Elbot. I don't even know why I came up with that name. Elbot becomes your new brand, and the the consumers are never confused and know it's the same source of goods. So if you can get ahead of it, you can sit there and spend the time in marketing or just selling your products, converting it over to a brand that you can still be in love with. Uh, you can have Elbot. I don't know who would be in love with that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I can't come up with a good example right now, but I have seen this, you know, many times over the years uh, after mergers and acquisitions, right? They, um, they take the, the, the company that's going to be the primary and then they, they, they put that up. Um, actually that happened with uh, steep Hill, I think the, in our own industry, it was, it was, uh, it was steep Hill and then it was, and then they, they either merged or bought out or something steep Hill Halent. And then they, they dropped the Halent after a little while and all of that goodwill was transferred to steep Hill. I, I may not have the story, right? But, but generally speaking with mergers and acquisitions, I think that that's a pretty common thing. Yeah, and it's really the good way to go. I mean, the real key here is, I mean, especially in cannabis, well, especially in every industry, just about is your brand is your your most valuable asset. That's how customers know you. That's how you get a return sale. So that's what you have to protect more than anything else, except your reputation, make sure you have a good product. Uh, but even if you do, if you lose your brand, nobody will ever be able to find you again. You've got to start from square one in a sea of hyper-competitive uh, competitors. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's an understatement, man. So, all right. So, 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 all right. So after the break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about what to do once you have your trademark and how to defend it from all the people who are going to come after you. You are listening to Shaping Fire. Uh, we're going to take a short break. And our guest today is attorney Neil Janeja, founder and managing partner at Gleam Law. If you like podcasts like Shaping Fire, chances are that you'll like audiobooks too. Just like with podcasts, audiobooks speak to you, tell you stories, and teach you stuff. Here's the thing. Audible.com has an offer that I want to tell you about. Right now, they are offering a trial of their audiobook service for absolutely free. You can go to shapingfire.com forward slash audible, and you'll get a free audiobook straight up. 
You can listen to it on your mobile device, computer, or download it and listen to it, you know, like anywhere. It's really simple. Of course, they want you to subscribe to their service after the free trial and enjoy audiobooks forever, but you don't have to. All you have to do to get the free audiobook of your choice is to just check out the service for free. And the service is pretty great. There are whole sections on permaculture, sci-fi, history, um, biography. Hell, you can even listen to a book about card counting and blackjack. Whatever, it's all pretty rad. So that's the deal. Your first book is free. It's easy to sign up. It's easy to quit. And their online library of free books is pretty incredible. So just check it out. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash audible to find out more. Or just click on the link in this week's newsletter. As a business owner, you are incredibly busy. In reality, you are responsible for everything your company does. You have so many responsibilities every single day that often you just don't have the time to really dig into something as deeply as you'd like. You know there is more that you could do to reach out to new customers and to encourage loyalty in the customers you already have, but you certainly don't have the time and you're not ready to hire someone full-time for that role either. For you, I recommend Blunt Branding. Blunt Branding Principles, Kirsten Nelson and Anthony Garcia, are focused on improving your bottom line. You know, most marketing firms are excited to make your logo, packaging, and website very pretty. But they leave responsibility for improving your bottom line up to you. They don't want that kind of responsibility. But that is pretty much the most important part of marketing, right? Kirsten and Anthony will help you engage new customers, funnel them to your point of sale, and keep them coming back to you and telling their friends. No doubt, this is a paid commercial spot, but that does not mean they bought my opinion. I've worked with Blunt Branding on three projects now for various clients, and every single time they have done more than they have promised and over-delivered on results. I love how they generate new revenue and focus on that as the goal instead of just making me a pretty logo. Similarly, every friend I've referred them to has come back to thank me, and that just does not happen every day. So grab a pen and paper because the website address is coming. If you want someone to implement marketing programs that feed your bottom line, give Blunt Branding a call. They will share proven techniques to increase your audience and generate sales while using cutting-edge technology in the background that make all of this easy, automatic, and trackable. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Blunt Branding to find out more. You can also click the link in our weekly newsletter. Blunt branding, marketing that makes you money. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shangolos, and our guest this week is attorney Neil Janeja, founder and managing partner at Gleam Law. So before the break, we were talking about how to both secure and uh, why you want a trademark to begin with. But now we're going to talk about um, what happens after you get your trademark. So, so Neil, after I get my trademark, um, what is my, what's my level of flexibility with my trademark? Am I able to license that to other people? Um, can I adjust it a little bit as I go? How locked in am I to a trademark and what can I do with it? All right. Well, first step is people want to know why or when you can put the TM or the circle R. I'll tell everybody right now, put a TM on it. Basically, all the little TM says is I'm holding this out as a trademark. I'm putting you on notice. I consider this to be my trademark. So you can put it on anything. Whether or not it's valid, there's no real legal basis or it really doesn't matter. Although if you put it next to the word cannabis, I don't think anybody's going to believe you. Uh, But when you actually have a federal registration, you can start using the circle R. Um, there's also something called SM. So there's TM for trademarks, SM for service marks. You can use SM for service, but it's not required. TM is fine. The rationale being that SM may have a derogatory connotation. I'll let your imaginations work fine with that. <laughs> uh, so can you license it? Yes, you can license it. You'll license it with the goodwill and you'll have a proper agreement in place. And one of the requirements and one that that is often missed is you can't do what's called naked licensing. So naked licensing is I'm going to license out my trademark. You just go use it for whatever you want. And the reason why this isn't permitted is the consumer is harmed. Uh, This came from a case in the Ninth Circuit, Washington actually, where there's a wine company that just licensed uh, their brand to another wine company and then they got sued. And the defender – I'm sorry, they sued somebody else. And the defender said, why? You're not even treating your trademark 
as it should be. And they looked at the licensing agreement and they said they're right. They just told somebody to use their trademark. You don't know if it's the same quality of goods or if they're even maintaining quality. It's just another company putting random red fluid in a bottle. So they lost their trademark. And they lost it after they tried to sue somebody. So Jeez. it might have been a bad move. Uh, so you don't do, want to do what's called a naked license. You want to have quality control provisions in there. Now, with cannabis rules, uh, some of the regulations don't allow too much control from outside the company. So you've got to be really careful how you write those and satisfy both trademark law and your cannabis regulations. And Washington in particular has been a really difficult one because we don't even allow um, easy payments for royalties. So we just fixed that in Washington. Uh, the legislature did a couple months ago. So that'll start to be um, easier in Washington. It's it's pretty okay in most other states as far as cannabis goes, but really look at those laws. Um, can you make changes? Well, there's when we talked earlier about you know your name, your slogan, your logo. So your name and your slogan are two different marks. You have a word mark, and you could have a design mark, which includes your logo, your colors, etc. I recommend filing your mark, your trademark application in black and white because then it's all colors. So. There could be some changes, but you really don't want to change the word mark unless you're adding other things. If it's going to be changed substantially, you should probably apply for a new mark. Uh, and that's that's really how that works. Right on. So it's funny. Um, I'm listening to you as a brand strategist, which is my my main shtick. And, and it's funny because you said when you get to add the TM, SM, or R to – your name. And for me, I never want to add the TM because it's um, visually distracting and not as pretty, right? And so for me, I would love to be able to have my trademark and never have to put the damn TM on there. Um, but then again, you know, I've always been told that you've got to have the TM to alert all humans everywhere that I have a trademark name. What's the truth behind that? Do I actually have to use that trademark, uh, the TM? Well, a trademark attorney will tell you absolutely. I would say the same, but I don't use it for Gleam Law, and we have a registered trademark. It, mm. it, it hurts the entire simple look. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah I totally agree with you. With you. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, where this really comes into play primarily is on enforcement. When you get to damages, it's non-willful versus willful infringement. It's a huge difference in terms of damages. But when you sue somebody – you don't you don't get to damages in most scenarios because you're suing to get them to cease and desist their infringing mark and if it's a clear case they're going to cease and desist after you preferably before you file but after you file as you're suing them and you're going to say great i'm going to drop the case cuz why am i going to spend more money to get to damages and it ends there. So willful, non-willful matters a bit less. Uh, where something in like copyright, you're going to go for damages as fast as possible. And you're going to ask for settlement. In trademark, you're going to say, look, I won. You stopped. Great. Goodbye. And um, so it doesn't come as much in play as it could. Uh, so I always recommend using the TM or Circle R, but I can see exceptions to it, including myself. Right on. Great. Man, that's a great answer. It kind of um, reminds me of those folks who are using um, <clears throat> uh, the legal system and uh, 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 software patents to just capture troll and sue people. Like if you want to capture troll and sue people for uh, for trademark, you want to put TM on everything so that you can go after their money. But if really you're just in it to protect your brand, and we all know that your logo or your 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 company name looks better without the TM, uh, you don't really. It's it's not a 100% have to do thing. And um, honestly, that's that's reassuring. Yeah, at the very least, you know, put it at the bottom of the website. You know, this, this, and this are registered trademarks of this company. You know, Coca-Cola I think uses the circle R, but they also say on the back of their can. You know, this is a registered trademark of the Coca-Cola company. So, you know, put it somewhere. It's uh, definitely good. I mean, I do recommend using the Circle R when you get a registered trademark, but I could see exceptions. Yeah, especially in packaging. You know, throw it on the back. You don't have to put it on the front. You're good to go. 
Um, all right. So what happens if um, uh, uh, I see someone using the name that I have trademarked? What, what's the action that I take? Uh, send them a cease and desist letter. And I've gone through every type of cease and desist letter in terms of tone. And there's a beautiful one by Jack Daniels that sent a letter to this woman that was using it. And they're like, maybe it's a guy. And they're like, look, you're using it. We really like your stuff. We're going to give you a limited license. We're even going to pay to help you design your next logo. And it became viral. It was beautiful. So I've gone and tried every kind of tone from, hey, we get it. You know, we're happy to give you time to, hey, we're going to come and kill your firstborn. <laughs> oh, my and, God. Yeah. And I'll tell you, the nicer you are, the faster they are to lawyer up. <laughs> you kind of have to be stern and mean and threaten to come over to their house. Um, I, the last part is definitely not legal advice. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, you send them a cease and desist letter. You, you prep for litigation. You expect them to back down. The cannabis industry is an industry of fighters. <laughs> We've been – the industry has been disobeying the law for so long. <laughs> they're more likely to fight uh, regardless of what the legal basis is. So you may want to get ready for litigation. State litigation's better. There's um, – there hasn't been any federal litigation on cannabis marks right now. Now, it's weird. You, you're not supposed to be able to get a federal trademark through for cannabis, but the Lanham Act – uh, the federal law I mentioned earlier does allow you to use federal law for common law trademarks, but you think the first thing a judge, a federal judge is going to do is throw it out for illegality. So we haven't seen this litigation yet, but it's coming. We have seen state litigation, um, and I haven't seen one of the state litigation cases actually be determined on its merits, but the judges were more than happy to hear it. So – more likely than not, you still have state trademark law as well for statewide enforcement, and that's the first direction you'd go at. But once you file that lawsuit, they should back down uh, if you're in the right. So let's flip that around. Let's say that it's not me sending the cease and desist letter. Let's say that I receive the cease and desist letter um, after I open it and I my adrenaline spikes and I freak out. Um, what 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 is my response to receiving such a letter? Well, first, you've got to figure out whether or not there's a legal basis. Are they being a bully or are they right? And we have some as far as bullying going is going right now. Uh, no names, but there's a California company that really shouldn't have a valid trademark. And it's never going to hold if somebody stands up to them, but nobody has. Uh, and if it's not valid, well, then it depends what you want to do as far as your resources go. Do you want to fight it and validate their trademark in the process? And um, that's also a negotiating point. I will invalidate it. Your trademark attorney, your litigating attorney knows it. So you better just back down. Um, but if they really do have a valid argument, well, you should probably work with them to say, look, I get it. You've got to give us some time here to to convert over to a new brand you know give us six months to work this through we'll sign the paperwork that says we won't infringe again and we'll be good right and um that usually works and six months is a reasonable period of time depending on what the product is to phase out right on and i think that it's good to point out too that just because somebody says that you've got to stop using a name because they, they, they control it does not mean it's true. I mean, one of my clients has, has got a, a legit company here in the States and they received a cease and desist from a company with the same name in Canada that was all mouthy and pushy. Um, but you know, it's a different country. And so, um, they, they sent back a strong and well thought out reason why like essentially F you, um, but, and then they never heard from them again. So I think it's important for people to realize that just because you get a cease and desist letter does not mean that you should just throw your hands up in the air and give up, that there's plenty of room to defend your turf, even if you don't hold a trademark yet. Uh, absolutely. There is uh, a common law mark. Like I said earlier is good in which the, the region it's used a geographic region. So you can have two common law marks in two different States that are both valid and can't stop the other one from using it. Uh, as far as uh, from a little earlier, what do you do when you receive a cease and desist letter? There's a third option, and that's to go to them and say, well, maybe I am infringing. Can I license it? Mm. And I mean that was pretty much the only option. They're going to get money out of you. So they may actually do that as well. 
As far as Canada goes, they just recently joined the Madrid Protocol, which is under the UN. Usually, they used to be part of a different trademark system, but now we can use the Madrid Protocol to register the mark in the U.S., bounce over to the Madrid Protocol, and then shoot out to a number of other countries for registration. Canada is now one of those countries. It's a majority of countries on the planet. Um, I don't think Brazil is yet, but basically almost every country is now covered. So it's an easy method. You pay in Swiss francs. It gets very expensive if you're doing 20 countries, but it's a method of, of registering uh, internationally pretty quickly. And Canada, that's a method to do it with them as well. That's funny that you're saying that they uh, they pay in Swiss francs. You know, it's so international. My brain was like running along with your sentence and I was waiting for you to say Bitcoin. I think we're probably a little, <laughs> a little early for that. <laughs> I hope so. Um, I mean, I'd love to see Bitcoins. I really wish these uh, – these retail shops and dispensaries would use uh, Bitcoin credit card transaction machines. And I don't know what the barrier is for not doing that. So basically you just run a credit card. It would buy Bitcoins, transfer it over to the dispensary or retail shop. And uh, your credit card receipt would just say Bitcoin purchase. So I'm sure that there's folks in the audience who are, you know, very focused and excited about taking some action on this. And, you know, we've given them a lot of first steps, but for certain, anybody who is either A, going to take their business seriously, B, want to get a federal trademark so that uh, they can expand their brand across the country, and C, certainly if they're going to have any plan on going international, all of these people are going to want to get an attorney. So um, the two things I'm curious about for you, Neil, is number one, what are typical attorney's fees for this like just beginning stuff just to kind of get you established with a, with a U.S. trademark? And even more importantly, what attributes should somebody be looking for when talking to a trademark attorney? You know, just like, just like I tell people, you know, you know, interview a couple um, real estate agents and know what, what you want them to know so that you know if they know. It's got to be the same thing with uh, trademark attorneys. So, so, you know, what should somebody be prepared to pony up financially and what should they ask their potential attorney? Well, uh, for the first thing, I would recommend not going to one of these trademark mills. Uh, there's a big one in California, and then there's some of these um, websites that offer a lot of different uh, services, and they offer really low prices. And that I could see the compulsion to go with them, but there's a lot of add-on fees, and they're not doing the proper work. So you get 8 to 12 months down the registration process, which is about what it takes, 8 to 12 months on a good day if you have no issues, and now you don't have a trademark, and you're out that, hey, it was only a couple hundred bucks, but now you got to start back at the beginning. Even worse, it could do damage to your ability to get it in the future. So when they bring them to me after they get a rejection, I can't save it. You know, you, you, the whole narrative is wrong. We basically have to abandon it, wait a little while and try again. Uh, so when going to a trademark attorney, there's maybe four law firms that, that handle trademarks in cannabis right now, and they're all competent. Uh, but, you know, it's going to be fit. You know, do you like them? It's going to be pricing and the pricing could be anywhere from 1200 to 5,000, let's say. And, um, some of those pricing is because it's not apples to apples comparisons. So they'll say, look, we'll do the, the search and file it, and it's $1,000. Oh, office action? That's another 1000 or 2000 You know, where we do a flat rate that includes most office action, so it's the only price you're going to get the whole time. But everybody's going to be a little bit different, but it's really just their comfort level with cannabis in the USPTO because that should be a specialized field or is a specialized field in and of itself. A regular trademark attorney will screw this up left and right until they have some experience in it. Uh, so that's the way to go as far as choosing an attorney. Right on. And so I guess for my last question, you know, we're all pretty much expecting that at some point um, – you know, something political, whether or not um, cannabis becomes Schedule 2, or maybe better yet, it becomes unscheduled, or, you know, any one of these odd things that are happening in our political environment right now, one way or another, cannabis is going to get the blessing where we're okay nationally. Um, what do you foresee as being the – I guess the sign, the signal that we all should start um, – filing or you said you said it earlier actually the the race to the 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 trademark office is there a particular thing that will happen after the law changes which is our universal signal to go and do this now 
I'd say do it at day one and just get started. As far as how each office handles things, the trademark office handles things different than uh, the FDA, which handles things different than Department of Justice. And they really just look to different weighting. So when it does get descheduled, the trademark office will adapt pretty quickly or may create its own rules to follow. They may create a new class for cannabis, which is really what I think should happen, but can't without the UN's approval, the WIPO's approval, World mm-hmm. Intellectual Property Organization. So I don't know how it's actually going to come down. It's all just guesswork right now. Right on. Sounds like another good reason to um, have an attorney so that they can tell you too since they're watching it every day. Absolutely. Yeah. Right on. Well, thanks, Neil. You know, these are some of the best uh, explanations I've ever heard for uh, trademark. And um, it's such a confusing area. So thank you for sharing your expertise and goodwill and coming on the show to, uh, to share what you've got. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. You can reach Neil Janeja through the Gleam Law website. That's at gleamlaw.com, and Gleam is spelled G-L-E-A-M. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I will be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.